Hello, I'm Rebecca Rosewood, and this is Thrice Cursed. Warning. Thrice Cursed is a true crime and paranormal podcast. It is intended for mature audiences. Some graphic depictions of violence and other unpleasant material may exist beyond this point. For more specific content warnings, please reference the episode notes. Last week, in a nod to National Women's History Month, you heard all about jolly, rather disturbed... Jane Topin, and the hauntings of her final home at the Taunton Insane Hospital. If you're listening, I can only assume that the wall crawler didn't scare you away. And for that, consider me impressed. I scared myself away. The episode you're hearing today was, in fact, recorded and edited by my soul, which left my body last episode. Maybe Amethyst Rome will want to date my soul. Amethyst? You there, girl? In today's episode, I'll discuss probably the only thing scarier than a wall crawler, an unsolved murder. Now, that may sound crazy up front, but think about it. Sure, a wall crawler is absolutely horrifying, and I definitely don't want to ever see one, but in this instance at least, it seemed to be confined to one location, a murderer that was never caught. Well, they could be anywhere, at any time, with any target, and they're likely going to be emboldened by the fact that they were never caught. So, and spirits, don't call me on this, but I'd take being in a room with a wall crawler over a murderer any day of the week. And now that my incoherent babbling is out of the way, we can get on with the case. Thanksgiving of 1969 for 22-year-old Betsy Ardsma was spent with her boyfriend in Hershey, Pennsylvania. The next day had her taking a bus back to Penn State University, where she attended college. While many remained away, enjoying Thanksgiving weekend with their families, Betsy had hoped to do some research for an English assignment. Her English 501 class, taught by Professor Harrison Meserol, required a lot of library work, according to one student. So it was fairly common that students who took this class would spend hours on end there. Betsy walked with her roommate to what is now referred to as the Patty Library, where the two parted ways. Sometime between 4.30 and 4.45 p.m., after she'd only been there for about 30 minutes, Betsy Ardsma collapsed. At least... That's what everyone thought initially. During her collapse, Betsy pulled several books down from the shelves, causing a rather loud commotion in a sparsely populated library. Some people who'd been present in the library at the time reported hearing a scream, while others only recalled hearing the sound of falling books. Sometime between then and 5 p.m., a man leaving the area, reportedly running, told nearby witnesses, somebody better help that girl. Another source I found stated that this man had actually been with another man, and both men actually led her back towards row 50 and 51 where Betsy lay before disappearing. It's unknown which account is accurate, but the most widely discussed account is that of there being only one man 
who mentions helping a girl, then flies out of there like a bat from hell. According to the same source, one of the men came forward and was actually cleared as a suspect. A sketch of the other man was drawn up based off of witness descriptions, and I will include the sketch in the blog post and Facebook group, so definitely make sure that you check that out. The man from this sketch? He was never found. I'd also just like to take a second here to clarify that when I say witness, I mean witnesses of general happenings at the library, and not the actual murder. As far as anyone is aware, there were no witnesses to the murder, other than the murderer themselves. And probably this man, assuming that he wasn't the murderer. And that's a pretty big assumption, because if I had just witnessed a girl collapse, I'd be sticking around to give my witness statement. Unless I had caused it. Were that the case, I couldn't get out of Dodge fast enough. And neither could this guy, it would seem. The Center Daily Times of State College reported on December 1st, 1969, that Betsy Ardsma's body had first been discovered by an acquaintance named Mary Erdley. She couldn't figure out what exactly had happened to her and spent the next 15 to 20 minutes attempting to get passing students to help her before anyone finally stopped. And I'd just like to say a quick fuck you to bystanders who don't help someone in need. Like, I can kind of understand why you might not jump in during the physical attack, but in the aftermath, there's literally zero excuse and you're garbage. As someone who was once jumped by three girls while 30-plus people stood around filming with their cell phones, you can straight go to hell. And I mean that, from the heart. When first responders joined Erdley and Ardsma between the stacks of books, even they had been at a loss. It wasn't until the paramedics on scene took her to the campus medical center that a gruesome discovery was made. Within an hour, it became clear that Betsy Ardsma had been stabbed once on the left side of her chest with what was described as a hunting-style knife. The knife sliced her pulmonary artery and broke through the right ventricle of her heart. This had initially gone unnoticed because Betsy had been wearing a red dress over a white cotton turtleneck sweater that day, a fact that in and of itself was strange. A friend by the name of Linda Marza said, That would have definitely been out of character for Betsy. A dress and a white cotton shirt on a cold November day to do research in the stacks? That's not normal. A small amount of blood spilled outward and was camouflaged by her dress, while the rest bled internally into her lungs. It was eventually determined that Betsy had died within five to ten minutes of the attack, long before any of those bystanders had stopped to help her, might I add. The knife wound itself, as well as deep bruising around the entry point, indicated that the murderer had struck her with great force and was right-handed. A lack of defensive wounds tells us that she either knew the suspect or never saw them coming. Part of me is just picturing those old horror movies where an attacker tries to stab someone from the other side of a library bookcase. You know those bookcases that like don't have a center divider? So if you're on one side of it and someone's on the other, you can see them. <laughs> but based on the amount of force as well as, I don't know, logic and practicality, I doubt it. Many state troopers involved in the investigation believe that the murderer had grabbed Ardsma from behind before plunging the knife into her heart. 
Now, I'm not a criminal investigator, and I have zero education in the area, aside from what I've seen in documentaries or read online, but I find it difficult to believe that a killer could get the kind of force that was necessary in this instance from that kind of a position. A murder weapon has never been recovered in this case. The weapon is believed to be a hunting-style knife with a one-edged blade that is three and a half to four inches long. So, how could someone commit a murder and get away so cleanly in a public campus library? Well, there are several things to factor in here. To start, let me first give a brief explanation of the library's layout. In November of 1969, each row of shelving units extended all the way to the wall, meaning there was only one point of entry for each row. In addition to that, the space between each row was extremely narrow. Narrow to the point that if you and one other person were in the same aisle, you wouldn't be able to pass the other person unless one of you turned sideways. This kind of setup meant that should someone corner you, there was no escape. Horrible layout aside, the murder took place over Thanksgiving weekend. Alumna Cheryl Sharp, who had been 19 at the time, was working as a clerk in the library one floor above where Ardsma had been found. She stated that the library had been practically empty, as most students had yet to return from their Thanksgiving festivities. Sharp also noted that the library had halved its staff in expectation of a lighter student presence due to the holiday. Authorities at the time estimated that there had been approximately 90 students in the library over multiple floors, only about nine of which were within 70 feet of Ardsma when she was murdered. Due to those bookshelves that I mentioned, however, none of these people saw anything. Shortly after the murder, security cameras were installed in the library elevators. Prior to this, there were none. Nor was there a security presence at all, as it had never been deemed necessary. In addition to the lack of presence and lack of security cameras, we have to look at the immediate actions after the murder. It wasn't known until at least an hour after the discovery of Betsy Ardsma that her death had even been a murder. What does that mean exactly? Well, unfortunately, the scene was never secured as a crime scene by campus control or first responders. By the time it was realized that there even was a crime scene, it had already been contaminated beyond repair. Even when the first responders arrived on scene, There were as many as seven people meandering about and just touching things. By the time investigators arrived on scene, staff had put the books away and a janitor had mopped. There was even a urine puddle nearby that had been mopped up. By this point, any evidence that had once been present at the scene was gone. Because of tragic mishaps like this and many others, nowadays when officers first arrive upon what is called the death scene, It's cordoned off and the event foul play is determined. Back then, that just wasn't the case. So, now that we know what happened, I'm going to take a quick break so I don't have to stop in the middle of all of the different theories. Hey, Cursed Ones. Since you're listening to my podcast, I can only assume that, like me, you're into the dark and spooky sides of life that most people tend to stay away from. If that's the case, You'll love the new partnership I'm a part of. I've partnered with Melodramatic Fine Art to bring you a beautiful set of five spooky-looking postcards. 
Personally, I'm framing and hanging mine. They're so cool. I'm not sending them to anybody. They're mine. <laughs> each postcard is five by seven inches, has a matte finish, and features photographs of eerie, spooky shit that I just cannot get enough of. We're talking dark chandeliers, a bathtub full of dirt and leaves, random toilet brush art that you'll have to see to believe. Not to mention, the creator of these is one of my very first supporters. So if you could help me support her, head to thricecursepod.com and click the menu option postcard set or search melodramatic fine art on Etsy. Make sure to use code thrice10 at checkout for 10% off and just in time for the holidays too. Are you fascinated by true crime like us? If so, check out our podcast, Crime Divers, hosted by me, Jill. And me, Laura. Look out for new episodes every Tuesday when we discuss true crime from around the world. So what are you waiting for? Come join us as we dive in. All right, with the break over, let's get into some of the suspects and theories. I'm going to note here that anything beyond this point is all theorizing and nothing has been proven. So therefore, you can tack a huge allegedly onto every single thing that I say. Any names I will be stating going forward are also public domain or public knowledge, meaning I didn't get them from private police reports or any digging that any normal person couldn't do with the help of Google. I say this because were that untrue, I would leave the names out. Boring rules and whatnot aside, here we go. As time has gone on, the number of theories in this case have only increased. As we always do, we'll start with the boyfriend. Betsy chose to attend Penn State mainly because her boyfriend, David L. Wright, had been attending Penn State College of Medicine in Hershey. The med school campus her boyfriend attended was nearly 100 miles away, but it was still closer than her initial plans of joining the Peace Corps in Africa. She'd only followed him to Penn State when he insisted he wasn't sure he would wait for her. Which, sure, kind of a dick move, but also perfectly understandable. Long distance is hard as hell in the same country, let alone a different continent. In interviews, David has stated that while he wasn't engaged to Betsy at the time, he probably would have given her an engagement ring over Christmas that same year. Of course, you can say anything about something that didn't happen, so do with it what you will. A distraught David stated that the last time he saw Betsy was on November 27th. The couple had shared Thanksgiving dinner with a group of fellow med students. Afterwards, David dropped Betsy off at the bus depot. As with most investigations, being the partner... He was the initial suspect. Furthering the possibility of David being involved is the fact that he's a med student. The method of murder was so precise and done so cleanly that either the killer got unbelievably lucky or they had a working knowledge of human anatomy. And while human anatomy seems like a pretty basic thing to understand since, you know, we are human, ask me where my kidneys are. The results will shock you. <gasps> Spoiler alert, I, I don't have a clue. Just, just, I don't. Dr. Stephen Margles, who lived in the same house with Wright at the time, said, Dave was a big suspect because whoever it was that stabbed her, 
hit the vena cava. And because he was a medical student, he would have known where to plunge the knife. I mean, I couldn't have hit that if I tried, even knowing the anatomy pretty well. When police first arrived at the home, the detectives separated Wright and the other students who lived with him, then began their questioning. They all confirmed David's alibi. He and the others had been studying together at the time Betsy Ardsma was murdered. Despite this, detectives continued to drop in on David, asking him repeatedly about the events of that night. They visited so frequently that the Dean George T. Harrell of Penn State Med ordered the detectives off the grounds. Even still, they returned two to three times a week, according to Wright. Though now they met at a restaurant across the street from campus. Wright was a cooperative participant throughout the entire ordeal. Another theory that spread like wildfire across campus was that she was a victim of the serial killer that had been murdering women around the University of Michigan that same spring and summer. The women on campus were understandably terrified. If he had traveled to Pennsylvania and had murdered his next victim at their college, who's to say they weren't next? It became common for women to have security escorts to and from the library, particularly in the area where Ardsma had been murdered. Of course, John Norman Collins, the serial killer responsible for those slayings, had already been apprehended as early as July 30th of that year. The trial, however, had not yet occurred. As they say, innocent until proven guilty. In addition to Collins' murders, there were other murder victims that year in similar areas, none of which were attributed to Collins. Being who I am, I absolutely would have thought that there was a second serial killer, and they were setting their sights on my campus. Honestly, as if I'd need another reason to drop out of college. Another theory was that Ardsma had accidentally stumbled upon a gay sexual encounter and was killed to prevent her from mentioning what she had seen. According to one state trooper on the scene, when using luminol, the area lit up for not only a presence of blood, but semen as well, and Ardsma had not been sexually assaulted. Of course, we are talking about a college campus here, and I'm not at all surprised by the presence of bodily fluids. In addition to that discovery, there were also pornographic books hidden among the shelves near where Ardsma had been killed. And we're not talking one or two, we're talking 20 to 30 books in that area. That is a big number. That's like a mom's checking me into a mental health facility because I have a problem numbers of porn. Troopers typically don't believe that this theory holds any water, however. You know what it does hold, though? Semen. Lots and lots of semen. Is anyone else here picturing Nandor from What We Do in the Shadows talking about how the witches like to steal his semen? No? Just me? Okay. That takes us to theory four. Betsy Ardsma was murdered by someone else that she knew. As I mentioned earlier, Betsy's friend Linda Marza stated that she typically wouldn't wear a dress to go study at the library. This led her and investigators to believe that Ardsma had intended to meet someone there. She typically dressed far more casually. 
Add to this the fact that Ardsma didn't scream when her killer closed in on her, nor did she put up a fight, as made evident by the lack of defensive wounds. This was likely personal. Theory number five. Betsy was killed by Ted Bundy. If you're slightly surprised by that, you're not alone. Ardsma's name isn't one that typically comes up when you search for Bundy, and I thought I knew all Bundy-related trivia. Apparently not, though, so here we go. It's known that Bundy spent part of his youth in Philadelphia and attended Temple University in 1969. People who have studied Bundy state that he would have been driving along Interstate 80, which is just 12 miles away from the campus, around that time. Though it's likely he drove through the area several weeks before the murder actually occurred. Regardless of that fact, some investigators are still partial to this theory. It is strange, though, as Bundy's MO was anything but clean, precise, and well-planned. As we all know, he was the kind to brutally beat his victims before strangling them and then having sex with their corpses. The only real connections between Bundy and Ardsma seem to be that he was in the area near the time of her death, and like many of Bundy's victims, Ardsma was a college student. I personally think people give Bundy way too much credit. There was literally nothing extraordinary about him. He wasn't attractive. He wasn't intelligent. Ted Bundy was literally an idiot who couldn't hack it in law school, as made very evident by the way he handled his own trial. I don't know what the fuck that judge was thinking when he complimented Bundy's talents. The only reason he's romanticized is because he happens to be a white guy, like a large majority of serial killers are. I said it. It needed to be said. Anyway, enough about that jabroni. Theory number six is... interesting, and there are a few variations of it. This theory would have us believe that Betsy Ardsma was murdered by drug dealers. In one variation, Ardsma witnessed a drug deal in progress in the library and was killed in order to keep her silent. Variation 2 has Ardsma playing the role of an undercover agent. Her parents were involved in law enforcement as well in this version. People who knew the Ardsma family have stated in no uncertain terms that they were absolutely not involved in law enforcement in any capacity. Ardsma's theoretical position in undercover law somehow facilitated her death. The final version of this theory was that the killer was a drug dealer that the police were actually aware of and tracking at the time. This one has some fact to it, but was actually ruled out as police were able to prove he had been in Philadelphia at the time of Ardsma's murder. Theory number seven is that Ardsma was killed by a professor that knew her. Investigators spent quite a bit of time looking into Professor Robert G. Durgey, who had been 27 at the time of her murder. He had arrived at Penn State that fall, which is the same time Ardsma had arrived. He had been a teaching assistant in an English class on campus that semester. It's possible but unknown if Ardsma had been in any of his courses at the time, as there are apparently confidentiality rules that prevent access to the records that would clarify this? That fact alone is just wild to me. Like, you would think a murder would trump confidentiality rules on 
a college campus, at least in regards to like class schedules and things like that. I don't know. It's just weird. Within approximately three weeks of Ardsma's death, Robert G. Durgey perished in an intentional car crash near Lansing, Michigan. He crashed into a bridge abutment on December 19, 1969. His widow, Martha Durgey, has defended Robert, stating that he was troubled by demons, including a history of depression, suicide attempts, and hospitalizations. She also stated that they had left Penn State a day before the murder. About his suicide, she said that he had been stressed over his dissertation, as well as his teaching duties at the college. According to her, Ardsma's name had never once been mentioned. Probably the most detailed and final theory I will discuss is that a fellow student had been responsible. Two books published in 2011 and 2014 both name geology student Rick Hafner as the murderer. In the fall of 1969, Hafner allegedly told acquaintances that he had dated Ardsma. However, during his interviews with police following her murder, he stated that the two had stopped seeing each other in October, as she had become more serious with David Wright. This is a little confusing to me, because according to every source I could find, she had ditched her lifelong dream of joining the Peace Corps just to follow Wright to Penn State. That's already a pretty serious commitment, so what do you mean she got more serious? But I digress. Hafner told investigators that he had learned of Ardsma's death one day later on the evening of November 28th. However, it's alleged that he had actually shown up at the home of a professor just hours after Betsy Ardsma had been killed, asking if the professor had seen the papers. This is strange, as obviously no papers had been printed about her murder within hours of it actually happening. Especially considering it took an hour for anyone to even realize it had been a murder. It seems to me like Hafner was likely still running on adrenaline and needed to discuss his alleged crime with someone. The professor is said to have mentioned it to his wife afterwards due to the strangeness of it all, wondering if Hafner could have possibly had something to do with it. However, neither the professor nor his wife ever mentioned the occurrence to the police. Later in life, Hafner was deemed a who's who in America in 1975 going into 1976. He was a lecturer that traveled throughout the eastern U.S. and was destined to go on to greatness. That is, until his career crashed harder than 2020. In August of 1975, Rick Hafner was arrested and charged with sexually assaulting an underage boy. The 12-year-old boy, who will remain nameless, had apparently been working for Hafner out of his garage, putting together shipments of rocks and minerals that the geology professor sold to the Smithsonian Institute. The trial for this crime ended in a hung jury, and the only jail time he served in this instance was two weeks for being found in contempt of court. He'd apparently mentioned that he passed a lie detector test after being specifically told not to mention it, as it wasn't admissible as evidence. 
Initially, he had been sentenced to a month in prison, but was released early pending an appeal of this citation. Hafner won the appeal, and in March of 1979, the state Supreme Court ruled that he wouldn't be tried for the assault again because it would violate the double jeopardy law. His record was then expunged. So, at this point, you'd think that the guy would do everything in his power to avoid further scrutiny. If it were me, I'd probably live the life of Patrick Starr and just bury myself under a rock somewhere because shit has a way of coming back to bite you in the ass. Life has taught me that very, very well. This is decidedly not what Rick Hafner did. Instead, he basically devoted the rest of his life to trying to sue anyone that had anything to do with his trial. He went after police officers, the city, the county, the court reporter. Hell, he even went after his own defense attorney, which, frankly, it seems like the guy did a hell of a job if he only spent two weeks in prison on a one-month sentence in a trial for sexual assault of an underage child. But sure, let's just sue everyone. As the lawyer in Bob's Burger says, if you don't sue, shame on you. Hafner was convinced that this trial would be the end of his career, and in one case, it sort of was. Just before his arrest and subsequent trial, Hafner had actually landed a job at the University of Southern California, as well as the position of curator at the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles. These events caused the opportunities to be ripped from before his very eyes, as they should be, so good. The only thing left was to pursue years and years and years of lawsuits. He actually won $300,000 in a lawsuit against the museum that pulled the position from under him. As if all of the lawsuits weren't a big enough tell that dude had some anger issues, George Werner, an attorney who represented the city and the city police department against Hafner, recalled a deposition in which Hafner acted as his own attorney. He did this often, by the way, as do many psychopaths. Might I refer you back to Bundy? In this deposition, he actually jumped across a table and wrestled a witness that was being deposed. And this isn't even the only example of his temper. Though, are we at all surprised? In 1981, Rick Hafner was cited with disorderly conduct for causing an unknown disturbance in the lobby of Lancaster newspapers. In 1992, Hafner was arrested for, essentially, kidnapping a child. He'd apparently interfered with the custody of a 13-year-old boy when he took the child to Shinkatig, Sh- <laughs> Shinkatig, Virginia. He was reported as missing by the mother, who ultimately dropped the charges because Hafner had taken her son to Virginia numerous times on various occasions. As if that somehow made it better? I... I don't know. I don't I don't understand it. I don't pretend to understand it. I just read the things. This boy was eventually placed into a group home where Rick Hafner was forbidden access. Due to this, he eventually sued everyone involved in that decision. Mother, grandmother, I'm sure there were others. 
Christopher Underhill, an attorney who represented multiple defendants in this case, stated that Hafner was a cut above most people who represent themselves in court, but was just flat out wrong about the facts. In 1994, police responded to an incident at his home where he was charged with aggravated assault, assaulting a police officer, resisting arrest, hindering apprehension, as well as disorderly conduct for fighting with the officers and attempting to keep them out of his home, allegedly. Furthering this long list of insanity, in 1998, he was convicted of assaulting a woman after an argument in the parking lot of Liquor World in Milltown, Delaware. Apparently, the woman noticed a dog sitting in a shopping cart that appeared to have been abandoned. Unbeknownst to her, this dog was supposedly Hafner's. It's unclear from what I found, but I imagine she went to grab the dog so that she could take it to a shelter or something when Hafner appeared. He was enraged. The woman did the equivalent of a nowadays, my bad, bro, and attempted to walk back to her car. Hafner, surprise, surprise, would not let it go. He smashed a bottle against her car. When the woman finally managed to get into her vehicle, she decided to follow Hafner and attempt to get his license plate number. Court documents state that Hafner realized she was following him, exited his vehicle, then attacked her. He grabbed the woman by her neck, yanking her from her car, then proceeded to kick and punch her. In the brutal attack, her jaw was dislocated and several teeth were loose. He then had the audacity to try and sue her. He alleged that he was the poor victim and she had actually attacked him. The judge, on the other hand, tolerated none of his bullshit and threw the case out, stating that the complaint bordered on frivolousness. At this point, I'm sure every judge in the United States had heard of this janky freshwater bitch fish and wanted absolutely nothing to do with any of it. Richard Hafner died of a heart attack in the Mojave Desert in 2002, where he'd been studying rocks. Unsurprisingly, his neighbors nearly rejoiced at this news. Hafner was not remembered as a clean or organized person. His yard was constantly in states of disrepair, full of broken-down vehicles, tarps on tarps on tarps, covering piles of random rocks, and metal drums as far as the eye could see. While no one complained to his face about this, one former neighbor, who requested to not be named, said that if he found out you had called the city, he would terrorize you. In retaliation, he would apparently slash tires and leave garbage across their yards. On another occasion, neighbors watched from their car as Hafner's dog did its business in their yard. Upon asking him to clean up after his dog, the man picked it up with his bare hands and threw it at the couple through their car window. Who won in that situation? Despite all of this horrifying behavior, Hafner was never described as a murderer until around 2008. Author Sasha Skuchek I don't know how to pronounce that, but... <laughs> Author Sasha Skuchek had spent years researching Betsy Ardsma's case and writing about it for multiple magazines. 
After having a conversation with Hafner's former professor, the one that remembered him showing up the night of the murder, Hafner became his number one suspect. Skachek stated he left the interview with his mouth wide open. Oh my god, this guy did it. Derek Sherwood, an amateur web sleuth who worked with Skachek, had posted a reward online for anyone who could provide additional information about Rick Hafner. In February of 2013, Rick Hafner's cousin, Chris Hafner, stumbled upon that reward post. Chris had worked with Rick for five years in the 1970s and was searching for some of Rick's research online when he found it. Initially, as many of us would, Chris didn't believe the accusations that were being hurled at his cousin. I mean, how could you? You've known this person your entire life. You've worked with them, were inspired by them even. Hell, to you, they're a genius. Now, all of a sudden, as an adult, you're finding out that people actually suspect your family member of murdering a girl in cold blood. After a while of sitting with that knowledge, though, Chris began to dig deeper. He spent hours researching what had happened to Ardsma, and then he remembered something. In 1975, while Chris had been working in Rick's garage, there had been a confrontation between Rick and his mother. Unbeknownst to them, Chris heard it all. Of course, at the time, he had no point of reference for what he was hearing. Rick's mother had been furious about the molestation charges that were filed against her son, as I think any parent would be. But what started off as that conversation quickly devolved into what Rick owed her and what Rick, quote, had done to that girl at Penn State, end quote. According to Chris, the crux of the conversation was that he had admitted to something to her at some point, and she was there to cover for him. And here, after all that she had done for him, here he went and put everything on the line again. He then alleged that he heard his aunt say, you might as well kill me too, Rick. Which, dramatic! To this day, Richard Hafner has not been named as an official suspect by police. State Trooper Jeff Petucci said he is not a suspect. He is a person who we believe may have possibly had more information about the crime. Fucking duh, okay? I think we can all see he had more information. Betsy Ruth Ardsma was described by friends, loved ones, and teachers as the best America had to offer in the late 1960s. She was artistic, poetic, and highly intelligent, graduating with honors from the University of Michigan in 1969. According to some, she also had a dark side. It's referenced in many places that Ardsma seemed to foresee that she would have an inexplicably short life. Her pastor even cited a poem she'd written as a high school sophomore titled, Why Do I Live?, at her funeral as evidence that she accepted God's will and embraced death. She was also described as brave, having spent a week on a mission program on a Navajo reservation in New Mexico, teaching art to what were then horribly called ghetto children in Grand Rapids. One can only imagine the amazing things Betsy Ardsma might have accomplished had her life not been cut so tragically short. 
The investigation remains active to this day. All in all, at the height of the investigation, between 30 and 40 state troopers worked the case, interviewing thousands of people and following leads all across the country. And while 51 years have gone by since her senseless murder, many hold out hope that her case will one day be solved. Roger Smith, the retired cold case officer, said, It's my understanding that there's still a possibility of getting some DNA evidence from what was gathered in 1969. Anyone with information that might help state police solve the Betsy Ardsma slaying, or anyone who thinks they know someone who might have information, can call state police trooper Kent Bernier at 814-355-7545 or email him at kbernier at state.pa.us. And that that information will be in the show notes as well as on the blog post. Adding to the difficulties of current investigators, the records in the Ardsma case have not yet been converted to digital form. The official report alone is more than 2,000 pages long. To help out with situations like this, do a Google search to see how you can help in your state or country. You can also head over to projectcoldcase.org slash get-involved to volunteer. They're not currently seeking volunteers at this time, but we'll hang on to your application in the event a need arises for individuals that can contact law enforcement, for public record requests, or administrative tasks and data entry. I've sent in an application myself and hope that anyone who has the time or desire will do the same. If you don't have the time but would still like to help, Check out their website for other ways to contribute to the cause. Again, that's projectcoldcase.org slash get-involved. And that will also be in the show notes and on the blog post. This has been the cursed tale of the tragic, unsolved murder of Betsy Ardsma, a woman murdered in the prime of her life. Now, for those of you who don't follow the Facebook group, Discord server, Instagram, or Twitter, firstly... What are you waiting for? But also, there's currently a giveaway going on. But hurry, because you only have until the 14th, which is two days from now, to enter. All you need to do to enter is leave a review on iTunes and or Facebook, then email me a screenshot of your review to thricecursedpod at gmail.com. Three lucky winners will receive Thrice Cursed mugs and a sticker personally designed by yours truly. For pictures of the prizes and written out instructions, you can go to www.thricecursepod.com slash blog and check out the Cursed Giveaway entry. For more Cursed content, check out Thrice Cursed Pod on Twitter and Instagram, follow me on TikTok at Rebecca Rosewood, check out the website at thricecursepod.com to find direct links to all of those, as well as the Discord server, Patreon, links to merch, etc., If you enjoyed the Grimoire Tales episode, please make sure to send your stories to thricecursedpod at gmail.com, as I know I would definitely love to do another one. And finally, thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone who listens. We just hit a thousand listens, so I'm very stoked about that. Uh, Also, thank you to anyone who just interacts with me on any of the social platforms, sends in emails, buys merch, or just exists. You're awesome. Uh, You're all truly amazing and have gotten me through some really rough emotional spaces. And as I like to say, I appreciate you from the curse to my hearse. Truly.
Until next time, keep your curses hexy and your hexes sexy. And now that my incompe... That proves my point. <laughs> to start, let me first give a brief explanation to the... Onto everything... Every single... Right was a... Particularly in the area that odds... Ardsma's name isn't... T- the 12-year-old boy who will rena- rename... I'm not renaming a 12-year-old boy. <sighs> Putting together shipments of rocks and minerals that the, geo- that the geology professor sold to the... At the national... National. One former neighbor... 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 Had plo... Had plosted... Oh my god.